Democratic New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says America was never great, much in part thanks to discrimination and stereotyping of women. But are women in America really being systematically discriminated against and stereotyped? Or is Cuomo just using women as pawns to push a greater agenda? We discussed that question along with a poll that found that less than half of American millennial women identify as feminists and half are also not sure that the Me Too movement has made things better for women. Plus, the queen of soul singer Aretha Franklin sadly has passed away. We'll be joined by a special guest from The Federalist who will discuss the ways in which she impacted the music industry and beyond. Welcome to this week's edition of Problematic Women, a podcast and Facebook watch show that showcases strong conservative women, current events, and the hypocrisy of the so-called feminist movement. I'm Bree Payton, staff writer over at The Federalist in front of The Daily Signal. And I'm Kelsey Harkness, a senior news producer at The Daily Signal. So Bree, let's get right to it. There is a brand new CBS News Refinery29 poll that found only 46% of American millennial women identify as feminists. And half are not sure the Me Too movement has made things better for women. Specifically, women aged 18 to 35, which are the millennials. So among the Democrats, 63% identified as feminists. 48% of independents identified as feminists. And only 29% of Republicans identified as feminists. Why do you think that is? And do you find anything interesting in those numbers? Was there anything you were surprised by? Yeah, I was honestly surprised that that few Democrats, like only 63% of Democrats identified as feminists. I would have assumed that that number would be close to 100%. Um, And I think it just goes to show you that so much of the feminist movement is about getting specific political wins. That's really all that it is. It's not a movement that is saying, obviously, the dictionary definition, which feminists always like 2.2, is that feminism is making sure that both men and women are treated equally in the eyes of the law, which 100%, I think that that number would be 100% or 99% of women would be all on board with that, um, probably with a few exceptions here and there. But I think it's clear that feminism the term, the movement, et cetera, has really just become about specific political wins, namely, you know, pushing for increased number of abortions. Um, And I think that that has really just turned people off, including liberal leaning women and Democrats. I agree with you. That's very interesting. And I think uh, the fact that only 29% of millennial women who are Republicans Um, identify as feminist is also interesting because right here, I guess you're looking at the minority. Brie and I both kind of embrace the term feminism, but we always have to have an asterisk under it because of the ways feminism has been hijacked to mean supporting uh, government-funded unlimited abortions. Um, I also wanted to bring up uh, the the specific breakdown of percentages for women who think the Me Too movement has made things better for women. So um, among 18 to 35-year-olds, 50% of women say that the movement has made things better for them. Between uh, 36 and 49-year-olds, 39% 
uh, think Me Too movement has made things better for women. And from there, it just goes down when you get to women in their 50s. Only 41% think th- think things have gotten better. And then when you get to 65 and older, only 40% of women think Me Too movement has been a good thing for them. So I was struck by this personally because it seems like this Me Too movement was so long overdue. The stories that came out, the Harvey Weinstein, the Matt Lauer, uh, across industries, really. I mean, you. I think the Fox News stories count as, as the Me Too movement. It seems like it was long overdue and women are now empowered to speak up uh, if any of these uh, injustices occur. And so for such large uh, majorities in this case of women to feel like the Me Too movement really hasn't made anything better, I think is kind of sad. And it makes it makes me want to look into this more and wonder what we're missing. Why isn't this movement connecting with women across all different age spectrums? Yeah, I definitely was surprised that that few, especially in the 18 to 35, thought that the Me Too movement was something that made things better for them. Um, maybe it's just because things are already good for women. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is because of that. Well, I think also the Me Too movement has, and we've talked about this, has taken a couple of steps too far, right? And like, okay, we all can agree that sexual harassment is something that should never be tolerated um, ever. And that's something that we can all agree on. But I think like taking that a step further and saying that, you know, if you had a bad date and then regret it later, you can turn around and claim that as part of the Me Too movement, like what happened with Aziz Ansari. It, I think that made us all kind of pump the brakes on this movement a little bit and say, whoa, 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 what are we really doing here? Um, so I just think that that skepticism, I didn't realize that it was that widespread, especially with a poll conducted by CBS and Refinery29. Um, so that was pretty interesting and I think says a lot about where we are and where things are headed. Absolutely. And I want to move on. But before we do, I just want to um, give you one more reason why I think a lot of uh, women are not connecting with the Me Too movement. In addition to, um, you know, the issue of due process being coming up in issue in, in cases like Aziz Ansari, we also see a lot of hypocrisy coming from the Me Too movement. And, you know, as someone who supports it, I also, you know, want to call call them out when Uh, There are these hypocrisies. And just recently, there was a big story published in The New York Times about a uh, big time feminist professor who was accused of sexually harassing a male former graduate student who she was mentoring, doing some very creepy things to him, inviting him in her bed, petting him, sending him very interesting emails um, and you know, it seemed like the evidence was there. The school conducted a Title IX investigation um, and and decided to suspend, I, I believe, suspend this teacher, this feminist scholar. And interestingly enough, a bunch of other feminist writers came to her defense. And I think it's stories like this where fem- where feminists are undermining their own goals and agendas because they just end up looking like hypocrites because they're trying to protect their own rather than really, um, really support this this movement um, from all different levels. You know, I, I think the headline in The New York Times was what happens when a feminist is accused in Me Too. So I encourage you all to go check that story out in The New York Times. Switching gears here. Do you all remember that 
terrorist compound that was training kids to be school shooters. While the new details emerging are pretty shocking, the man who was arrested for running the New Mexico compound's father is an imam who was a mentor to Linda Sarzor, who's lauded as a feminist hero and has long been involved in the Women's March and other uh, feminist pushes and movements. Sarzor, who has famously called for Sharia law to be implemented in the U.S., has been embraced by the Women's March and other feminist groups, despite the fact that she once called Saddam Hussein a hero. And her connections to the radical imam, who was once listed as a co-conspirator in the 1993 World Trade Center attack. So here's what she said about Imam Shiraj Wahaj, whose son was the alleged ringleader of the New Mexico training compound that was raided by federal authorities last week, where the body of a small child was found and 11 other children were found living in extremely squalid conditions. So this is what she had to say. She says, my favorite person in the room, that's mutual, is Imam Shiraj Wahaj who has been a mentor and a motivator and encourager of mine, someone who has taught me to speak truth to power and not worry about the consequences. So why aren't feminists distancing themselves from Sarzor? And why do you think that the story has pretty much just completely fallen out of the news cycle? I think it's because there are very few consequences for anybody who is in the cultural, culturally popular um, movement, which now has become the Women's March. Uh, Sarsour has so many controversial and, and shady dealings in her past, very controversial opinions regarding Sharia law. And somehow she is still one of the leaders of the Women's March, which has turned into a massive organization that I would argue really has come to define feminism on the left. Um, I, you know, the fact that from the start, I, I agree, the story hugely underreported. If you haven't read about it, please go um, I mean, look at some of the pictures that came out came out from this. I mean, this this really was a terrorist compound, and Linda Sarsour's connections to it um, are really disgraceful, and it's so hypocritical for the feminist movement to um, sort of legitimize her relationship with him. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that the connection of that imam and his son, who is running this crazy compound has been just kind of totally glossed over and something that honestly shouldn't be. I mean, this is his dad. Um, obviously, I'm not I'm not blaming, you know, the father for what he was doing. But I do think that we do need to talk about aspects of radicalism as leading to violence. And I think that just glossing over it and pretending that that's not happening is counterproductive. That gets us right into our, our next topic. I think the left more than the right has... Um, has a habit, a strange habit, of glazing over uh, radical uh, factions. Rad- I, I almost yeah. said radical feminism, which, which is... Well, they do that, too. Yeah, they'll gloss over radical feminism. They, they normalize also radical extremist. feminism while, while they just basically ignore radical terrorism. Um, so I just wanted to highlight this story. I thought our listeners and viewers would be interested in it. So there's a very young American couple who recently got killed by ISIS. Uh, these were two 29-year-olds, uh, one of whom worked in the government, uh, quit their jobs and emb- embarked on a very long and ambitious bike tour starting starting in Africa. Um, on day 369, Things turn very ugly when they were biking with a group of a couple other tourists in southwestern Tajikistan. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> a carload of men um, 
who a car a carload of men um, basically hit them and ran them over and killed them. So two days later, these men released a video um, showing their affiliation, bragging about their affiliation with ISIS. And they're sitting behind an ISIS flag and they showed their whole face. There's pictures on this about this online. The reason I want to bring people's attention to this is because I think a lot of Americans, specifically in our generation, millennials, have this very idealist view on the world that evil doesn't exist. If you're nice enough to evil people, they'll, uh, you know, they'll put their their evil thoughts aside and shake your hand and bring you bread and uh, make peace with you. And um, this this seems to be what this couple really thought. So they 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 kept a blog post al- along their travels, um, and this is something that they wrote in it. Um, this is, this is from, uh, this is from Jay Austin. You read the papers and you're led to believe that the world is a big, scary place. People, the narrative goes, are not to be trusted. People are bad. People are evil. I don't buy it. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans holding values and beliefs and perspectives different than our own. By and large, humans are kind self-interested sometimes, myopic sometimes, but kind, generous, wonderful, and kind. So I think that this strikes at the heart of the differences between progressives and those who consider themselves to be conservatives. Um, Conservatives believe that, you know, men are wonderful, but also they have these really bad tendencies and that you shouldn't separate humans from human nature and that human nature is constant. And it's something that ultimately doesn't change. I mean, you could look back at through history books uh, thousands and thousands of years ago and see that the vices of men are the same thing. Right. And that is having rampant sexual appetites. That is drinking. That is smoking. That is, you know, abusing one another. um, That is carrying out wars and doing all these other things. I mean, human nature doesn't change. It is constant. And I think acknowledging that just saves you a lot of time. I think building a system that acknowledges human nature and implements checks and balances and separation of powers are good things. And time and time again, progressives try to eliminate those stoppages, those instances, um, because they they believe in progress, right? And they're like, oh, tear down everything because man is constantly getting better and we're constantly evolving towards like a better version of ourselves. And I think that that's just a fundamentally flawed understanding of human nature. And I think that you need to recognize things as they really are. And I think acknowledging, you know, if there's a region that the State Department is like, hey, don't travel to this area because there's violent extremists and we can't guarantee your safety, I think probably take that at face value. And this is the really, really sad and tragic lesson that we are learning here today. Yeah. So if you have anybody, any uh, friends, uh, children, grandchildren who are interested in embarking on a journey, long bike ride through ISIS territory, maybe just point them to this blog. Okay. So next topic, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, uses women as a prop to say that America's not great. We're going to show you the clip of what he had to say. And look, the simple point is all this comes down to this. We're not going to make America great again. It was never that great. 
We have not reached greatness. We will reach greatness when every American is fully engaged. We will reach greatness when discrimination and stereotyping against women, 51% of our population is gone, and every woman's full potential is realized and unleashed, and every woman is making her full contribution. When that happens, this nation is going to be taken even higher, because we have not yet fully liberated the women in this country, and we will and New York will lead the way and watch New York rise. Thank you and God bless you. Oh, Bree, did you know you were such a victim? Oh my gosh. Again, as I was just talking about how progressives view the nature of man, he literally came on stage and was like, we're not great because we haven't reached perfection yet. And that's a state that we're never going to reach. And I think that we need to just acknowledge that fact. We're never going to be perfect because we are fallen beings and we have a nature that is flawed. And you know what? We can make things as good as possible. I think we should always be striving towards better, always striving to perfection. This is something that the classic the classic Greeks got right, right? Like they were constantly striving for the ideal, perfection, um, excellence, virtue, but they understood that they would never be able to perfectly implement it. And that's our fate as men, right? To constantly be striving for, for perfection and for virtue and to never quite reach it. Uh, but anyway, I was just really frustrated at all of this and what mm-hmm. he had to say that America was never great. I mean, come on. We're the freest country on the planet. We're the wealthiest country on the planet. Um, we took great strides in empowering women. Your thoughts? I hate to play the offended card, but I couldn't <laughs> help but feel offended by a man standing up there on stage telling me what a victim I am when I'm sitting here living in the best country in the world. I was born into the most opportunities in the world. And he's sitting up there saying, oh, poor you. How privileged of him to appropriate your victimhood, Kelsey. (laughs) Rude. (laughs) Anyways, uh, this definitely, I I think, and and the whole women's angle, like he couldn't, we see the left do this all the time with minorities, with um, religious minorities. And I sort of was like, why women? Why, why the women card? It's like every, in every speech, they have a different card to pull out. And the women's card just seems so weird here. um, Because I think there are issues that we need to talk more about when it comes to minorities. Um, Maybe talk about women, minorities, they might have some specific issues we can address and get better on. But to say that women in America, like America's not great because women aren't doing well, I think is just false and quite frankly offensive. Um, of his press sec- th- this comment was not well received. I don't think Democrats really knew how to deal with it. Um, but his press secretary attempted to walk it back, do some damage control. And he said in a statement, the governor, the governor believes America is great and that her full greatness will be fully realized when every man, woman and child has full equality. America has not yet reached its maximum potential. That's actually very different than what he originally said. But okay, moving on. When we come back, we'll be back with our next segment, This Is What Feminism Looks Like. Do you like podcasts like New York Times The Daily or anything from NPR that breaks down important policy issues? But are you tired of the liberal spin? Then you need to check out Heritage Explains. 
Each week, we dive into timely policy issues at a 101 level from a conservative perspective. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with our next segment, This Is What Feminism Looks Like, a segment where we usually hold up positive examples of feminism today. But today, we couldn't help but turn the segment on its head and show you or tell you about what feminism literally looks like according to the left. So I actually can't show you this because the picture is too graphic, but we'll tell you about it. What happened is Lena Dunham, you know, the writer from Girls, the actress Lena Dunham, the famous Lena Dunham, liberal activist, decided to post pictures of herself in the nude with all her tattoos showing uh, and, and this is, this is her reasoning. The The weird thing in this pic, the picture, she wasn't even really smiling. She was, she wasn't even trying to look good. Um, these were the captions next to the pictures. Today is national leather craft day, national relaxation day, and national lemon meringue pie day. It's also the nine month anniversary of my hysterectomy. I never, I've never celebrated the nine month anniversary of anything and realized last night, why that number feels so funny. I won't ever do it the way I plan to. My body is mostly healed, and every day I find a new bruise on my heart. But today I offer myself gratitude from the most pained place I somehow knew to choose myself, the pure, the purest glint of who we are, and um, and no can be. Let me redo that. The purest glint of who we are and know we can be is always available to us, calm and true at our center. So on one hand, if you read the text, you feel a lot of sympathy for her. Clearly, she's going through a very difficult time. Uh, you know, she had to get this procedure that's quite serious and she's suffering because of it. So my heart in that re- regard really does go out to her. Um, you know, she's only nine months from that away from that um, procedure. On the other hand, I'm pulling up these pictures. You can go Google it. Uh, we're not going to show you because if there's any children watching, they're not they're not quite appropriate. But it just made me question: Why do so many women, so many people who call themselves feminists, always need to take their clothes off in order to prove they're empowered or in order to feel they're empowered? Can you answer that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And recently I have been like thumbs upping or liking, not thumbs upping. <laughs> I'm such an idiot. I've been liking Lena Dunham's Instagram post because recently she posted a photo of herself when she, you know, was like a lot thinner. And then one of herself more recently where she wasn't as thin and she was just like in the one photo, you know, I know I look better in the photo where I'm thinner, but the reality is that I was just living off of diet pills and coffee. And felt terrible all the time. Now, maybe I'm not, you know, as thin as I was, but I'm a lot happier and I'm a lot healthier. I think that that speaking out about stuff like that and saying, you know what, I'm doing what's healthy for me. um, And I think that she is a healthy size at the end of the day. Like, I think that she's doing what works for her. And I think that that's great. Um, And I think that it is really sad. I mean, I know several friends who have endometriosis, which is the condition that Lena Dunham suffers from. I do know actually one woman who got a hysterectomy in order to like alleviate symptoms and treat um, endometriosis. So, you know, I think that her being a public figure and talking about it is so important for so many women that are suffering with this condition. That being said, I'm going to have to kind of agree with you when it comes to like the weird nudity aspect of it. Like maybe it's an attempt to like reclaim her sexuality because she's saying the nine month anniversary of like losing 
you know, her reproductive organs, which is obviously nine months is significant because that's how long a pregnancy typically lasts. So, like, maybe it's, like, a, a, an attempt to reclaim her sexuality in that way. But I think that it kind of undermines your voice a lot of times and what you have to say. Like, if you have something important to say, like, I, you know, I appreciate it and want to hear that. But I think, like, deciding to go with the nude option is, like, I don't know why you felt the need to have to do that. And, yeah, I'm not I a fan of that. I couldn't help but ask, are we being hypocritical by talking about this? Because if she were some supermodel, would anybody have a problem with her posing nude? And on one hand, I think the answer is, yeah, there is some hypocrisy here um, amongst ourselves. But on the other hand, I think back to the Sports Illustrated uh, magazines when they all got nude. And a lot of us actually said, "What? what is your deal? You're fighting against Me Too by getting naked you're not helping your own agenda. You're not helping yourself be respected. Um, that certainly was a very controversial opinion. I know some of uh, our colleagues at the Federalist got a lot of heat for deciding to speak out and write about that. But in general, I, I do just question why so many of these liberal feminists need to get naked in order to feel empowered. Yeah, or like, okay, if you're going to do that, then expect to be objectified and expect to be critiqued about your body and expect people, you know, to dissect this or that about your body. Like, you should expect that because that is what you're putting out. Like, if you don't want to be objectified, you don't want people to look at your physical body, then, like, don't show it to them, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm, yeah. So, anyway, that's all of my thoughts here on this, and we will be right back after a quick break. And we're back. And now it's time to crown our problematic woman of the week. This week, we are going to dedicate this episode to Aretha Franklin, who passed away sadly today after a long fight uh, with pancreatic cancer. Our thoughts and prayers go out to her family. So I've long been a fan of her music, but I've got to be honest here. I don't know all that much about her life. So here to talk to us more about Aretha Franklin's amazing and wonderful life is Ellie Bufkin, who's my friend and a staff writer over at The Federalist. Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here to uh, talk about the Queen of Soul. <laughs> okay, so what was something that surprised you when you you wrote a piece dedic- you know, honoring her life over at thefederalist.com? What's something that maybe you didn't know when you started writing this piece or just like a tidbit about her life that surprised you? Um, I think really what kind of struck me, and I think I kind of already knew this, but going back through the research was really her sort of fearlessness um, at a time, you know, when she became, well, she started her career as a gospel singer, started her life that way, um, and she really knew that she wanted to hit mainstream, and this is a time where African-American singers really weren't welcome into pop music uh, readily. I mean, it was the thick of the civil rights unrest of the 1960s. Um, and she really wasn't bothered by that. She wanted to go forth anyway, didn't like her deal at Atlantic Records uh, or uh, Columbia Records and ended up at Atlantic where she found her iconic uh, sound. So I, I thought that was pretty impressive, her her bravery. Yeah, absolutely. And just to hit a couple of you know records and landmarks about her legacy, she recorded 112 Billboard charted songs more than any other female artist in Billboard history. And she was also the first woman to be admitted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and sang at the right. inaug- inauguration of 
three separate presidents. And she was also, she also sang at Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral. Can you tell us a little bit more about her legacy as a civil rights activist? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that's really kind of notable about her is that she doesn't have a huge extensive history of being uh, an activist, except that she just uh, just clawed her way into musical mainstream and really desegregated pop music, which was so impactful to the racial relations in that time when there was so much unrest. Every person born in this century can name five Aretha Franklin songs just off the top of their head. Uh, and that was at a time, you know, especially to hear my parents talk about it, who grew up in like the South in that time, to talk about how important Motown uh, and Aretha Franklin and, and a lot of those performers coming out at that time were for sort of softening a lot of hostility between races, um, which to me is really impactful and really important uh, to kind of note as well, just how much pop culture can influence the way that we perceive each other. And Ellie, this is Kelsey now. I find that so interesting that although I, I think she had such a massive impact on the civil rights movement and really on all Americans, she wasn't this polarizing political activist that we see in so many musicians today. She stuck to her music, but her music told the story and her music actually changed things. I think of the song Respect, which we all know and love. Um, and and she was, you know, I think so many people connected with that because although it wasn't specifically about race, its underlining message is that everyone deserves and wants respect. And I think that's so powerful. I wanted to read one quote that um, I that I came across uh, today over at the Smithsonian um, and then get your response to it. She transformed popular music. She carried on the traditions of African and African-American music, bringing the sacred and the secular together and transcended everything from historical movements to base emotions. Absolutely. And that's like such an eloquent way of, of saying what, what I really was trying to imply as well. Um, I can't even imagine living in a time where a pop chart was just, you know, designed for, you know, white people or the other way around. And there was music that was really considered, well, this is African-American music and this is white music and that's it. There's no crossover whatsoever. But I listen to an Aretha Franklin song now, um, you know, or other artists like that, Smokey Robinson or Marvin Gaye, the Supremes for sure. And I never think of them as being, you know, for one race or for another. Those are just fun songs. They're catchy. You know, a song like Respect has such a powerful message as well that, you know, any kind of uh, movement can sort of, uh, you know, grab onto and use. Um, so I think it's so impactful and so important what she and other artists like her did at that time in particular. Absolutely. Ellie, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about Aretha Franklin's life and legacy. Uh, Kay Coles James, the president of the Heritage Foundation, has tweeted, weighing in on this, she said, quote, the Queen of Soul now rests in the arms of her precious Lord. Her music broke through all color barriers, moved an entire generation, and will last forever. Nothing but love, gratitude, and respect for you, Aretha. Gives me goose, goosebumps. And with oh, that... That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Allie, for joining us. We really do appreciate it. And um... It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Well, that wraps up our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And always, if you know a problematic woman, please let us know. Please nominate her to us. You can follow all my work over at thefederalist.com. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Brie underscore Payton. 
You can follow my work at The Daily Signal and on Twitter at Kelsey J. Harkness. And you can follow our producer, Lauren Elizabeth Evans, on Twitter at Lauren Eliz Evans. If you like this podcast, please support us by rating and subscribing on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate you sharing it with your friends and for supporting strong conservative women who are standing up for America's culture. <laughs>